want me to wake up, but I'm strangled in my sleep. You want me to shape up, but in my dreams I found relief. You want me to wake up, but I've been out for so long. Got plugs in my ears, got plugs in my soul. Hello, hello. This is Diego signing on to the CP show. Hope everyone is having a fantastic Saturday night. It's been one uh, one hell of a crazy week in the political world and quite a crazy day indeed. And um, we have a lot to talk about. We have a great show for you guys tonight. Um, we actually have our guest, Dr. James Miller, back again from last show. We're going to be continuing our conversation on school boards and school districts. Um, but first, as always, our introductions. I am your host, Diego, and I have with me my wonderful co-host, Kathleen Gomez. How are you doing, Kathleen? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Oh, it's been, uh, it's been, a one, <laughs> been an interesting day. I've been kind of um, on my, uh, been on my uh, computer all day kind of reading about all the things going on with the stimulus package. And, uh, and um, uh, Kristen Cinema's very strange thumbs down. Thing. So, uh, <laughs> well, you know, know what's you funny? <laughs> no, I've been stuck on the whole issue of Dr. Seuss. I mean, I don't know. This has got me all riled up, you know, banning his books, and and yet, you know, we're uh, we 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 were, we think songs by Cardi B like WAP. You know, I mean, that's that's the poetry of today is not offensive. So I've been stuck in a little bit of a different time warp than you have, but um, there is definitely so much going on that it's uh, hard to take it all in. That is for sure. Yeah. I um, The Dr. Seuss thing was definitely interesting. And I think it's, it's kind of a classic case of where there's really, I mean, you know, I have a lot of friends who are on the left side of things. Um, even like, you know, kind of some pretty far left progressives and, and, I haven't really met anyone who really was on board with that. I think that was kind of one of the things of, of a kind of snowballing of like kind of a corporate, uh, you know, a social kind of justice thing of, of dreaming where I, I really don't know anyone who, well, you know, it's one of two things, you know, supposedly this whole thing has been in review for many years. Right. So there's two ways to look at it. It's just, uh, uh, why now all of a sudden, did they feel that this was a time to say they were going to, I guess it's take these six books off of uh, being able to be, to be bought or to be, be read in stores. You just can't be able to purchase anymore. Or it's an incredible marketing tool because I think that everyone went online and bought as many Dr. Seuss books as they possibly could. Yeah, I think. Um, so that could be it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, no, um, no, no, no pre- uh, bad news, you know, no bad press is uh, still good press. So that's possible. I, I didn't think about it. But um, I don't know if the same portrays per to um, Kristen Cinema. I mean, that was a really – did you watch that? No, I didn't get a chance. Tell, tell us about it. So for those who didn't see, uh, basically, if you remember about three years ago um, when the, Trump and the Republicans were trying to overturn um, Obamacare – 
it kind of came down to one vote, and it was John McCain. And everyone thought, okay, well, John McCain is a Republican. He's going to vote to uh, basically re repeal it. Um, and so he kind of gets up there, and, and it's a classic scene. You got McConnell, you got everyone there, and um, he thumbs downs it, like kind of like the Roman gladiators, and says, "I'm um, I'm not voting to repeal it." And it it saved Obamacare, and it was a huge kind of deal because no one thought, you know, he was going to vote that way. And um, I think Kristen Sinema thought that she uh, kind of could pull off the same kind of thing, you know, being a Democrat, voting against. Uh, and this was just one provision in the stimulus package of uh, raising the minimum wage to $15. Um, but <laughs> what happened was uh, she kind of, I mean, you know, she kind of like jumps, kind of skips, for lack of a better word, skips up to the, po uh, up to the floor and then thumbs down it again. Um, and it, it was just a very strange thing to do. I think she was trying to channel McCain, being from Arizona, but um, it was just very, like I said, it was it was a very strange and, and, and very very bad optics. Just because, um, you know, I mean, regardless of what you think, there is a lot of people who probably would benefit from an increase in the you know minimum wage, and regardless of whether or not it's feasible, you know. Um, the kind of it, it seemed like she had quite a lot of joy of doing so. Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, so she's going against her party. Yes. So, so her and her and um, she's kind of gone against the party a little bit. She's kind of a. She also said she wouldn't, um, uh, you know, vote to get rid of the filibuster. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, she's definitely gone a little bit against the party, um, and you know, that's kind of she didn't want to. Uh, Kind of, kind of the thorn, and I guess in the, in the Democrat side, her and um, Joe Manchin out in West Virginia are kind of the, the rebels. Um, yeah, they, they, you kind of don't know what which way they'll go. Um, well, it's yeah. kind of refreshing in some sense of the way, and, and and I guess you know we do have we do have our show going on, but I kind of wanted Diego to you explain to the audience who's listening, kind of what our purpose is. Because, you know, politics, we kind of get lost, like, between Dr. Seuss and, the, and, and what's going on with the stimulus and Christian cinema. If people were to listen to us, I want them to understand what our goal is. And so why don't you put it in words yeah. as you do so well? <laughs> Absolutely. No, um, and, and that's kind of perfect. You know, the, both the Dr. Seuss thing and, and this, uh, this vote are kind of perfect uh, encapsulations of what we're trying to do. So um, the CP show here... Um, it actually stands, the CP stands for Candidates Platform, and, and uh, basically what that is, is it's a website we're building where you can basically, if you're someone who wants to know more about uh, basically who's running in your area, what their positions are, what they believe, and you'd like to get some, a little more one-on-one you know, one -on -one contact with them, be able to reach out, maybe you want to volunteer for their campaign, it's a place for you to do all that, and, and it's not... This isn't really, you know, geared to your, you know, your national senators or your, your the president. This is for uh, primarily for the smaller elections you don't hear about quite as much, where, you know, your support or your volunteering makes a huge difference. I mean, um, whether it's, you know, your, you know, local comptroller or your city council, or uh, for being very topical for today's thing, your um, school super, um, your school board, people running for right. your school board. Um, it's it's a big thing, and and that's the thing is is that no one. It's really hard to know who these people are, what they believe. Um, they're not in the news. They're not you know they're not someone that gets followed around by you know journalists. So you really don't you know their their twi their Twitter accounts if they have any are you know in the in the hundreds, not the thousands. Right. Um, 
and so this is basically the place where you can find out all about them. And the way we want to do is we want to make it very easy, very intuitive, because myself being, you know, a, a younger person, I have a lot of friends who aren't politically active and, and they couldn't tell you a single thing about um, who's, who's running, who's run, even who's running their names, let alone what they believe. So that's really what Canada's platform is all about. Um, it's about it's two parts. So it's that, you know, basically making it so there's a more educated voter. Um, but also it's a tool to help people run for office because a huge thing I, I know you have noticed and I've noticed is that it's really it's it's the people who run for office are very entrenched because there is this huge learning curve to running for office. It's immensely difficult. It's immensely political. Um, and if you're not someone in the favor with the parties, it's, it's very, very hard to run. Um, yes, it is. It is. Um, and we actually we had some uh, previous guests on kind of speaking to that where it's not something as simple as just, you know, put, going on the registrar and, you know, signing up. You have to get the votes. You have to – and there, there's all these rules that, you know, it's not really explained anywhere. Um, in fact, one of our guests from me having in the future, uh, Pete, um, Peter Brozka, he actually um, had that exact thing happen where he ran for office and he just uh, got kind of in the regulation, red tape, and, and was removed from the uh, – from the voting records and so it's really what we want to do is make it a very one-stop shop place for if you want to run for office you can put all your social media you can do amas you can reach get voter out uh, voter outreach you can collect emails that people want if they want to give you their emails for voter uh for email lists newsletters stuff like that um as well as a place for you to have kind of one-on-one interaction with people in your area um you know we've been conducting politics the way the same way for the last 50 years we've been knocking on doors and leaving pamphlets and and more and more especially this year with covid you know that's that's kind of something that has to go away we can't have those face-to-face interactions so that's the other half of it we really want uh, to make it a lot easier for people to run for office as well um, and then the other, the kind of the last thing about it is we are part of the Know Your Vote initiative. Um, it's not just about, you know, getting out to vote. We want people to have be more educated and we want people to know their vote and know who they're voting for. So that's kind of the basics of what we're all about, uh, kind of what we believe. So um, with that, I actually want to uh, pass it over to you, Kathleen. And uh, I know that Dr. Miller's on the line and... Uh, like love to hear from him kind of and go over uh, kind of what we were talking about last time. That's right. And I'm really excited. This is uh, the show is part two of um, our interview with Dr. James Abington Miller. He is a public education advocate, activist, independent scholar, African-American historian, writer, and documentary filmmaker. Several years ago, he created his own internet radio show called The War Report on Public Education, which explored the total, and I mean the total takeover of our education system by corporate interest. Tonight's topic is school boards in America, this part two, and the importance of running for your local school board, the massive budgets they receive every year, and the power and influence they have on your child's life. Dr. Miller has experience and research to share regarding school board accountability and the future of education in this country. From the bus company, the teachers hired and fired, to our current pandemic issues, our local school boards make decisions on every aspect of your child's life, in school, and now, 
in your home on Zoom. And so with that said, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us again to kind of delve into the power of school boards during this pandemic crisis. How are you doing? I'm fine, and how are the two of you? We're good, thank you. We were just kind of talking about this week how crazy it's been from the stimulus bill on the floor to the issues of banning Dr. Seuss books. So we uh, we went over that a little bit. So it's been kind of like, it always seems like there's a lot going on in, in politics every week. And again, you know, kind of like this pandemic, you know, I've been watching the news and there's so many districts that um, want to go back to school. So many that are saying, no, you can't go back to school. And kind of would like to get your viewpoint on how much power school boards do have during this pandemic crisis. Well, Depends on, I guess, the state that you're in, where local school boards have a tremendous amount of power, but also there are state superintendents who have great power, as well as governors. So it depends, again, on where you are and what state you are. But there's no denying that all three of those levels have tremendous power, and that's what I think it really comes down to power to make decisions, make policies, power as to funding and how funding will be used so that even during the pandemic, the whole year that we've been involved in this pandemic, school boards at all levels have been making policy decisions that more political some cases than they should be and so you, you have a mixed bag, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's depending on where you are, how powerful the school board is as it relates to their ability to make decisions. And some of the decisions that have been made that I've seen, I don't even want to talk about how upsetting they are to me in terms of putting money to some extent, profit over people. And I've probably said more than I wanted to say there because that, that I'm hiding a lot of my anger over what's happening as it relates to public schools at all levels' reaction to the pandemic. Well, can you tell us what you think about this? Do you think at this point, after it's been a year of closing, that it's time the kids get back into the... I mean, I, I kind of take it also on the social level, these kids need that place to go to, especially kids who are in poor neighborhoods and poor districts, that's their kind of one lifeline out of whatever's happening. Um, what is your take? What do you feel? Is it time to go back? A yes and no. It depends, again, on the school district and what they have done to make it safe for teachers and for the students to come back to school. Many, from what my looking at this, many of the school districts really haven't made the significant improvements in their overall conditions that is conducive to students and teachers coming back. So again, it comes down to location. My overall feeling is that we shouldn't have kids and our students and teachers back in 
many of the urban schools in the U.S. Hmm. That's actually kind of something I wanted to lead into with, um, you know, there is kind of have been this one-size-fits-all thing, and it's gone by kind of, in my opinion, arbitrary lines of state borders. Um, and so, for example, a great kind of example is um, is in Kansas City. Uh, you have Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, uh, Michi- uh, Missouri, Missouri, sorry, Missouri. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, these places are very similar. You know, there's really just an arbitrary line kind of cut halfway through. Um, and, and they have radically different uh policies and then you have but the city the districts that are fall in the same state so let's say the kansas city missouri um school districts will follow the same thing as you know lee summit or springfield missouri despite being totally different um kind of different entities and so my question to you dr miller is there's been some calls to um have instead of having kind of statewide um you know kind of a statewide thing over kind of over uh, guarding over these school districts uh more of a regional thing so you'd have the rural districts um your urban city your city uh, cores your urban areas your suburbs um have do you kind of think uh, and that's kind of my question is do you think that uh the way we're doing it where it's just state by state is is kind of not the proper way to go about it when it comes to reopening to me the decision almost this time, about this time last year, March of last year, when the nation was really becoming aware of that this is a pandemic. This is regional. It's statewide. It's national. It's global. We don't know about it, much about it at this point. And keeping kids out of schools and the teachers out of school was the best policy and the best approach. In the year that this all took place, politics, economics, have entered into the equation. And what I'm looking at, and my interpretation on a national level, you have more politics coming in, making decisions that shouldn't be made. And that opening schools prematurely, requiring teachers to come back, uh, students to come back, it is too early. Well, let me we, ask you a question. There's a lot of private schools and charter schools that are fully back. Is it that they don't have all this bureaucracy overseeing them? Or, because I know, like, say, and I say this a lot, and I probably shouldn't, but in my hometown of Douglas, which is a very small, 16,000, very rural, very poor town, the charter schools are all back. They don't have a lot of money. They don't, you know, a lot of people, I'm not sure where they get their money. I guess they get it from the school system, but they're all back. Why can they be back and not the public school? Well, you said it. They're charter schools that get public money, but they have the ability to set their own policies independent of local district states so that they can do, to some extent, what they want to do. And if having those kids come back 
so that they can get the money per student that they need to keep in business, because that's what it is, business, then, yes, they keep them open. But we're talking about public schools. The majority of our students are in public schools. And the majority of those are kids from low-income neighborhoods, families, et cetera, where the pandemic has hit the hardest, where the likelihood of someone being exposed, being infected, or to come into the school setting, be the, the students or the teachers or other support staff in the schools, it's a, it's a different ball game. They're playing by different rules. So if we took, say, okay, and we know in California they're mostly closed. We know in Florida they're mostly open. I know Arizona has mixed. Um, how, if you're on the school board, man, do you really, like, say of a small rural community, because you were saying that you didn't, you mentioned about your urban schools should remain closed. I'm assuming you're saying that because it's very dense population. Usually the, the public schools in big cities are being attended by low-income and uh, families, children of low-income families. Is, is that the right assumption that I'm making? Okay, if I was on a school board mm-hmm. in a rural area versus an urban area, I think, and again, me being me, I think I would have the same attitude that I've expressed. The notion that if we have a smaller school population that we can practice social distancing and all everyone has the mask on and proper ventilation and all those things, be it a small school or a large school or a small district or a large district. But the pandemic doesn't care whether or not you're in a rural school or urban school. And so your policies, and this is what I think your your show is all about in terms of school boards and policy making, be it at the local level or the state level. But policies have to be made on science, and you've heard this argument for the last year in terms of government policies and et cetera should be based on science, not politics, not mm-hmm. economics. So that, to me, would apply whether or not it's a rural school or an urban school, and particularly for the urban schools, which where the majority of your populations and most of the urban centers are minority students. So do school boards make that decision to go back or stay open or stay closed? Take your example of California. You have a state superintendent. That person, along with the governor, makes decisions. The county and the city school board, they pretty much are under the, ultimately under the control of the state. They they can't necessarily say, we're going, in defiance of the state, we're going to open schools. They can't do that. So it comes down to a question, again, of policies 
I think there are many schools that probably would have opened if they could have in defiance of the policies from state and federal government. So you think in Florida, because the school, that is more now an open state, the school boards can make that decision more freely to open in their own district. Even, but say, I mean, I, I do hear that there's some that don't, that they have decided to stay open. Well, in Arizona, I know they have had some school districts that have opened up and some that remain closed. Those tend to probably be in the city like Tucson, um, and the rural areas are more open. So I guess I'm just saying, is there a place for somebody to run for school board and make an impact? Is it the superintendent? Is that going to be always in the roadblock? Or can a local school board really have that kind of power? For this particular instance, I don't think the individual school board or even the collective school board can make a decision to bring back students, and faculty on their own, especially public schools. And kind of one thing um, you were, we, we had brushed up on that I kind of wanted to um, highlight is the, um, when we were talking about, you know, urban centers versus rural areas, um, there is a, distra a, a discrepancy between uh, racial statistics in those two groups. Um, you know, with, with, uh, Black and Hispanic children, uh, a lot by and large, I believe in some and in some cities, it's as high as ninety-eight percent um, of all you know Black and Hispanic children do go to public schools. For and with the especially Hispanic, uh, it was I believe about sixteen percent of the um, entire public of all public school students were Hispanic in two thousand, and then in twenty thirty, it's projected twenty percent. Um, so there is kind of that that issue of, you know, COVID not only uh, as a um, general kind of thing of, of, you know, bringing students back in, but also kind of the racial disparities because, you know, as we've said before, uh, obviously Black and Hispanic uh, pe people are at a higher risk of contracting it. So that's kind of one thing I, I would like to kind of highlight is that if you are someone who, you know, you do have strong opinions on um, you know, something like this, and obviously, you know, the think times will change, but there will always be these issues. Um, if you feel like, you know, with, with such a changing kind of demographic, changing demographics in public schools, you're going to have a huge jump between, um, you know, with Hispanic and Black and, and Asian uh, children in there, that it's really kind of almost, if you believe in this, it's almost an important duty of yours to get involved. And, um, you know, one thing we talked about last week, but I would like to just kind of reiterate for people who maybe didn't listen, um, Dr. Miller, is could you just kind of very briefly go over how instrumental um, these school board positions are to shaping the future? I mean, whether it's through, you know, kind of corporatization or political beliefs. I mean, uh, I just think that's really important to touch up on, on how important these school board positions are and how it's very much, as we said last time, week, it's become big business, big money to run for these offices. Well, what I said last week, and I would say this week, is that you pretty much summarized it. School board positions have become extremely 
important positions, both in terms of what school board members can do and why and how they can do it. People, as I mentioned last week, running for school board now has become, in some cases, a million-dollar affair, whereas 20, 30 years ago, even 10, 15 years ago, it was a position that so many people wouldn't even want to think about running for. Running for dog catcher would have been more popular than running for school board <laughs> election. Okay, so But things have changed in the sense that People now, especially the people with power and influence, money, they see the school board, and this is my take on this after looking at it for decades, they see the school board as the prime instrument for controlling the local school board, for controlling the education system in their area, be it at the city, county, or state area. And in that position of school board member, what do you do? You set policies. You select, you have an impact on curriculum. You have a major impact on textbooks that are used in your school. You have an influence on technology and et cetera. Let me give you an example. I thought about this all day long. About three or four years ago, in Texas, one of the largest, if not the largest, publishers of textbooks in the world revamped their textbook. It was like a social science type textbook. When the state school board in Texas saw this textbook, they basically said, no way in hell. Mm -hmm. Now, Texas has a huge population. They're one of the probably second, third largest school districts in the nation. And if they say no to a publisher in terms of we won't buy your book, publishers take note. And in this particular case, they didn't like the way in which the publisher treated African-Americans and Hispanics. The publisher was treating them in a much more fair, enlightened position in the textbook, they objected to that. And they told the publisher that if you want our business, you've got to change it. Publisher did. A mother, an African-American mother, was looking at her school child textbook, and she saw how blacks and Hispanics were being treated. This is in Texas now. And she complained. It came out that the textbook publisher wanted the business, so he, or I'm going to say he, she, they changed their textbook, making Hispanics look like the old stereotypes of after you eat, you sleep. Blacks were not as industrial as, as they should be, and a very moderately negative depiction. When the public found out about it. The school, the publisher apologized and said they were going to issue a supplement. They made the decision to go along with the school board because why? School board 
was looking at, they were looking at a billion plus order from the school board. This is, to me, a very prime example of the power, the influence that school boards have and how they can impact the socialization of students, children, and the impact that could be long-term, we'll say, the future. So uh, and to I... answer your question, tremendous, tremendous power and influence on current and future generations. One, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually 100% agree with you. Um, it is so important, and, and I actually, it comes to mind two quotes um, by probably two people on the exact opposite ends of um, decency and morality. One's a quite nasty, terrible person. One is a, a, a saint, literally. Um, but one of them is, is uh, he, he alone who owns the youth gains the future. Um, and then another, the other quote on the other side um, is that uh, never worry about the odds. Start with one person and start with the nearest one to yourself. Um, and those quotes were one by um, Hitler and then Mother Teresa. <laughs> and but they're both, I think, very, very accurate um, in, in pertaining to this. Where when you do kind of whoever is the one that's teaching the children. Um, that is, you know, that that's the future. That's and that's what that child will believe and teach their children. Um, and the same thing of where, no matter how through any movement or any, you know, ideology, uh, there's always the, the it always starts with one person and grows exponentially out there. And and that's my kind of my takeaway from everything we've been talking about is, is if you believe that, you know, you want to shape the world, you want to make the world better. You would like to teach the youths um, both, you know, history uh, fairly and accurately to move towards a better future and, a, you know, with better relations. Then what you need to do is you need it, it. Forget about the odds. You need to start with that one person and the person nearest to you is yourself. And so I would say that if you can, if you're able to, um, at the very least, you can get involved with a campaign of someone who is running for school board or, you know, reach for the stars and run for school board yourself. And, you know, that's kind of what I want for people is I want, obviously there is, you know, the big cities, LA and Detroit, where it is really hard to break into if you don't have that money. But it's it's not just, I mean, there, there are tons of towns, for, tons of school districts um, and those children need need help too, and those children um, need, you know, kind of they need honest representation in their school board, uh, school boards, so that you know things don't happen um, where you have kind of corrupt old uh, old opinions that uh, you know really aren't fair to uh, to especially to you know groups of the population. And I think I'd like to add and ask you, Dr. Miller, these school boards and they make the decisions on the bus that takes your kids to go to play other teams in other school districts. And, and that can be, as we've seen, a very serious situation where you have to make sure that the bus that you've chosen isn't somebody's friend's company, but actually has all the protocols, all the safety nets, right? So wouldn't you say there are things that can even go where it's not as national as, say, the books that you that you decide to purchase and, and have in your school system, which is very important, but also the little things like the buses that are hired and then the big issues, 
school boards hire and fire teachers, correct? Yes. And so they can decide if you have a teacher who's maybe speaking out on what her beliefs are or feels that something needs to be said, whether she's progressive or whether she's, you know, a conservative, they have the power to either decide to fire her or keep her in place or him in place if she's saying something that maybe a parent doesn't agree with. Is that correct? That depends again on, again, and I say again and again and again, on the school district and on the policies or laws that govern education in that locale or that state. Um, school boards, on the recommendation or usually of the superintendent, will make the decision to fire a teacher or retain a teacher. So that, the, when, and when the school board makes that decision, just say to fire, if that district has contract with the union, you have a different scenario unfolding here. The, the decision to fire must be in accordance with the agreement with the union. But in an area where you don't have union, uh, individual teacher really serves at the discretion of either the principal and or the superintendent and or the board. So it's not a, a cut and dry situation universally, but in places like a Los Angeles or the state of California and the state of Michigan, where you have unions and you have strong unions, school boards are limited to some extent, or they can just go ahead and fire, of course, but then they face ramification of trial, lawsuits, and et cetera. But your point, I think, is this, going back to what I said earlier, depending upon your location, but almost universally, school board and school board members have power. They have power of the dollar, they have power of the vote, they have the power to make policies, they have power to make the decisions, and they, all their actions have ramifications for present and future. It's a very powerful position now, and your show's focus on this power position could be more timely than it is right now. Uh, well, I, I, you know, I can't agree more. I, I really, um, I really think that this has been such a slept-on issue, um, and it's something that is, you know, so important. And in my, in my opinion, genuinely, I do think that this is more important than almost any other position because it involves children and what they learn so much. But um, with that said, I think we're going to take a quick break. If you do have any questions for Dr. Miller, um, you can feel free to call in. The, that phone number is 888-627-6008. Toll-free in the U.S. Canada um, is also 323-744-4831. But uh, if you are in the States, that number is 888-627-6008. We will be right back um, right after this message. 
For most of humanity, there's been a system of government where a small minority rules over the people. From emperors to monarchs to oligarchs, the will of the people, the desire for self-determination has been repressed. A group of visionaries envisioned a nation ruled by its citizens, one where leaders were chosen by its people to be held accountable. Hence, the United States of America was born. That dream of democracy has been defiled. We find today, our nation is run by a minority not held accountable to its people. Instead, special interests and money are the driving forces of our government. At Candidates Platform, we look to restore that vision. Our goal is twofold, to educate voters on the issues of the candidates running for local and state office, and to give the citizen the opportunity to run for office by having a simple, intuitive, cost-effective place to manage their campaign. Let's work together to restore democracy to the people. All right. <laughs> That's our new commercial, Dr. Miller. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I am um, partially ready to, uh, I, you know, hey, maybe, maybe we should make a movie as well. We can create our own, uh, we can create our own film you know, studio, you know? <laughs> You you went silent and all of a sudden this voice comes on and we're like, uh, uh, am I on the same planet that I was when we first started? <laughs> I know we 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 wanted to make this commercial. I, I we were debating on whether we we're going to have it in the beginning of the show, but um, I hadn't really heard it while we were you know on it and and it was it was it was interesting. What do you think? Did it get you hyped up, Doctor Miller? To run for office or to get in there and fight fight for democracy again? <laughs> well, to be very truthful, I know the voice. I know the voice very well <laughs> since I was on that network for almost five years. And when once I realized who it was, I'm a big old smile on my face. <laughs> I um I think you know it it also makes me want to watch Braveheart so I think Mel Gibson will be very happy um, <laughs> and maybe the Patriot as well but just general Mel Gibson roster of movies but <laughs> well this you know we really wanted to 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 kind of um, make people understand and maybe listen or maybe it's catchy and Diego and I were having a debate. If it's catchy enough to make people understand that this is, to me, we are at a time in in our political system where there are going to be choices we're going to have to make. We can't just no longer sit on the sofa, you know, with a bottle of beer and watch a game. Uh, we've got to get off the sofa. We've got to get involved in our local politics. You've got to run for city council, run for school board. It makes such a difference. Otherwise, if you don't do it, somebody is going to make those choices for you because bottom line is somebody will so it might as well be you and so we're hoping that people will get that kind of motivation and understand this is a time to be involved and i think one thing um you know kind of bringing that that point back kind of with our with our school boards is that there is you know um there is quite a bit of i would say conflicts of interest within school boards often that really wouldn't be allowed in any other um, kind of office where, you know, there are, there is quite often, you know, uh, you have people with business interests running for school board. Um, 
You have people who have, you know, a lot of times who have very close relationships with faculty, with superintendents, um, especially, you know, especially in kind of the smaller districts. Um, I can think of a, a couple that I've, a couple towns I've been in, small towns. And, you know, the, as is common with small towns, there is quite a lot, obviously a lot of um, intermixing. But one thing I noticed was that a lot of times the school board members were, you know, the, the husband of the, a certain teacher or was, you know, the, the uncle to, you know, the, the principal. And I've always found that that's very strange to me because I think if you were running for mayor of a town, you know, you couldn't have your son be the city manager or, you know, the, the city lawyer. Um, and so I was kind of, you know, in Dr. Miller, you've had extensive uh, kind of interactions with these school boards. Uh, is there any, just if in any kind of, obviously this would be anecdotal, but uh, did you run into any kind of, you know, levels of corruption um, and kind of uh, conflicts of interest when you were involved? Yes, I've, uh, most recently when I was in Buffalo, um, school board member owned quite a bit of real estate in the city, and that same member was leasing some of his properties to the school district. You're talking about a conflict of interest? <laughs> Big time. Huge. Yeah. Big time. All right. So, and, who do you think? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dr. Miller. Well, all across the country. Again, we're talking school board position is a politician by just a different name. Mm-hmm. And we know, at least in my view and my perception, and I've studied history for a long, long time, politicians can be as corrupt and more corrupt than any other occupation. <laughs> <laughs> okay? Yeah. Right. People go into politics to be corrupt. People go into politics so that they can have a say-so in where, like I just read today, where a particular senator is in a huge position on the U.S. Senate to make policy, make decisions on legislation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Given the position that this particular legislator is in, he can send more money back to his state because he can negotiate with his fellow senators. If I'm going to vote for this or against this, there's got to be something for me that I can take home. This is politics. And school board members, we would love, like our politicians, for them to be on the board because they have this altruistic vision and commitment to seeing to it that all of our kids get the best education that they can get at this time and that we're taking our responsibility as educators seriously in terms of our impact on our kids and who they're going to become and how they're going to become in the future and et cetera. And they're doing it out of pure love for the opportunity to make a difference. That's so idealistic that it's laughable. It can't even coming out of me. That's not how <laughs> it is just... today. School board well, is a big business. 
and I, and I guess you know it's interesting. My father was on the school board. I know Diego's like, don't talk about your town, but when he was on the school board, he hired Mexican American teachers. He got rid of the policy where if you spoke Spanish on the playground, you got whipped with a board that had holes in it. And he did a lot of things, which, of course, were detrimental. The teachers definitely didn't like me. But one of the things that happened was when his brother's sister uh, was hired as a speech therapist, he resigned because it was a conflict of interest. And I know nowadays that would never happen. And it's sad to say that, you know, Everyone is going to go into this corrupt, but I, I'm, I'm hoping that the people who are listening out there realize that there is still a lot of power and there is people who are idealistic, who do feel, and maybe this is something where you have term limits, where you're only going to go in for four years, you're going to make a difference, and then you're going to get out. Because we have to have hope that there are people out there who want to do the right thing, because otherwise, then we're going to be in a lot of, you know, and, and the, I. I really, truly do think that there are people that, you know, they, because that's the thing is, is that, as Dr. Miller said perfectly, a lot of people go into power, especially in these smaller positions. Um, I'm not quite as familiar with school boards, but I'm going to talk about something I know pretty well, which is, you know, comptrollers. Um, a lot of people come into these positions really, you know, not with the the best interest the best interest um of the community they, they go in there for you know for essentially corrupt reasons and then i think from what i understand i think that's quite similar with school boards um you know self-promoting interests and and that's the thing is is that obviously those people will always those types of people will always you know have an inclination for power but there's also a lot of good people out there who i think want to make uh, do better for their community. They want, you know, um, and I, I can't think of a better way. If you are a um, a minority person, or if you if you are black um, or Hispanic, you know, if you want to to better the uh, situation for young black Americans, then running for um, running for the school board is is really is a fantastic way to do that because you get a say, a very large say in in how they're treated and what they learn. So that's that's my thing is I just want um, to to really bring home that you you can fix this situation. You know, we, we can't do it alone. We want to help you do it. But we need you to help us by running for office, for getting involved, for helping other good people who are running for office. And Dr. Miller, I think I want to we're getting close. It always goes this hour goes by <laughs> so fast when we talk to you. But I know you've done a lot of work and research on millennials and the Gen Z generation. Do you? How do we get them involved? What do you think? Can will they run for school board? I, I, I mean, kind of maybe in the last five minutes or so we have, kind of talk about your research about them and what you're doing. Well, I, I am working very hard on that thing, but because I had a conversation with you. But even before I started on what I'm, the projects that I'm on now, when I was in uh, Buffalo, New York, as well as here in Los Angeles on the War Report, I had young people, some in high school, some right out of high school, who were running for school board positions. Wow. In Buffalo, there was a young man who was a senior. He was running against... The person that I just talked about who was on the school board, who was um, probably the richest person 
I think, in the city. He was running against this guy, and he only lost by 1,800 votes. Had his high school students who were 18 voted, he would have won. I had another uh, student on my show in a different part of the country. He was running for school board. I had uh, other students in Maryland, I think it was, if I remember correctly. No, I'm sorry, New Jersey. They took over the school board meeting. They took over the school board building and occupied it. These were people who, young people, who were becoming very aware and involved in the political, the power aspect of education, and they were trying to run for positions. Uh, just recently, uh, across the country, young people are running for local, what they call down-ballot position, local, city, county, and some state positions in their early 20s or 19. And so there is plenty, we just don't know about it, there's plenty action going on among America's youth and what they're seeing that's happening in the country and what they themselves say they want to do to be the change, to be the one to make this country better, make the world better. That's a lot of the work that I'm doing on right now. That's, that's, that's exciting. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I would really like you to come back maybe in a month or so and, and talk to us about the research you're doing on the millennials and the Gen Z generation and how and, and, and how we can get them involved or help them to get involved or just what you're finding that's going on. Because I know one of the concerns Diego had was not really seeing millennials of his age group really being involved in running for local offices. They were less changing. <laughs> it, it, it definitely has. Optimistic about it. I, I am as well. I think it's um, you know the last two elections have got. Let it me much stop younger. you for a second. For, yeah. Yeah. There's a phrase. It's the title of several books. We are the ones we've been waiting for. And in that phrase, it's young people are being identified as especially Gen Z and some of the millennials, that it's up to them to see the problems, understand the problems, and find the solutions, and then implement those solutions to be the change that humanity, and I call humanity and the planet, needs going forward. Mm -hmm. And that is a tremendous Awareness, understanding, emotional engagement, and individual and collective social, positive social action that I see coming from Z, and they're setting the stage for the generation coming after them. Z are working with the millennials that came before them. And, and I'll end this by saying, in the years to come, not the near, not the distant future, but the near future, that age population is going to be the dominant group in the millions in America, and they're going to have tremendous power on the national, state, and local level. I um yeah, I mean I think that's 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 
really, I think, a really good uh, optimistic way to to kind of end this because I do, I agree, I do think that there's um, just a ton of uh, progress. I, I do have kind of looked at a lot of what the Generation Z is about, um, and I, and I think they're they're definitely you know excited to be involved and and very um, very kind of ready to to kind of grab that mantle and keep running and so i have a lot of hope for them um and i i hope maybe dr miller you could come back on the show and talk about your research about that and what yeah, they're doing i think yeah you know i think maybe in um, a couple months that'd be awesome i would love to do that but i will also say that i will talk around the outskirts of what i'm doing as opposed to zeroing in on the the concepts and et cetera, because I'm still developing that. <laughs> oh no, no problem. Just what you would on the outskirts is much is just as exciting because you know we hear so much negativity about the youth and they're not getting involved. It would be great to hear from what you've been looking at to show that there is the other side. Well, well, I want to thank it. you for thinking about inviting me back and talk about my work because this is what I've been doing since I we stopped the war report. So for any of my friends who are listening from the war report, this is what I've been doing in the last two and a half years, and this is my next project. I might come back to radio to share some of this, but I think what you guys have just done is offered me an invitation to come back a lot sooner than I was thinking <laughs> to talk about Absolutely. it, and I would be delighted Absolutely. to do so. Well, I believe we have confirmed exclusive rights to all of Dr. Miller's uh, <laughs> research so, for radio. So, <laughs> Well, folks, we are wrapping up. Um, I just want to wish everyone a fantastic rest of their Saturday night. Um, I want to thank you guys for being here listening to us talk. Um, and we will be here in back in two weeks on March 20th. And we have a couple interesting things to talk about. It'll... Uh, we're going to go a little more into what's been going on um, kind of in the month of March, going into April. And then in uh, the next two weeks after that, we actually have another guest, uh, Peter Brozka. He has been running for uh, – ran for office, a couple offices in Jersey, and um, he's going to kind of give us a little bit more intel on kind of how it works um, in a much more urban city. Um, and so I'm really excited to have him on. I hope everyone has, a, like I said, a great Saturday night. It was thank you, Dr. Miller, for coming on, and um, we will talk to you in two weeks. <laughs>